Scripture reading this evening will come from Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41. Acts 2, verses 37 through 41. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. A couple of preliminaries before our study this evening. If you're visiting with us, we're really glad that you've come our way. You are here for part, I think this is seven, of a multi-part study on the Holy Spirit. And so if you're not really sure where we're coming from and why we're saying some of the things we're saying tonight, go back on our website, if you would, and listen to some of the previous lessons that'll kind of help get you maybe up to speed with some of the things we're doing tonight. This is, secondly, a preachy class or a classy sermon. I don't know what you want to call it, but it's one of those two. It's a preachy class or a classy sermon. I really don't know how to deal with the subject at hand this evening without, without doing it the way I'm about to do it. What we're going to do this evening is we're going to look at different views that our faithful, sound brethren have held over the years concerning the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to be considering each view in its turn, some of, the, some of the arguments in favor of and some of the things that might be said in response to each one of these views. And I'll have more to say about that in just a moment. But this is a little bit different kind of sermon than me trying to persuade you to, the, to obey the gospel, for example, although I would do that. And if you need to obey the gospel, you need to think about doing that tonight. But this sermon is not necessarily designed for that particular purpose. When I read a book, I read a lot, I always start with the table of contents and I always look at how many chapters are in the book, I always look at how long the chapters are, where's this book going to go? And when we start talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit, here's what happens. The Bible says in Acts 2 verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and we stop right there. But the passage goes on and it says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the question at hand this evening is, what is that? What is the gift of the Holy Spirit? I've heard a lot of preachers preach on this particular subject. And to a man, almost every single preacher I've heard has a view that they want to convince the audience that their view is the correct view. I understand that. I appreciate that. That's what a gospel preacher is supposed to do. This is where my study has led me. This is what the Bible is teaching. And, and they, they do it from that perspective. But back to my book analogy. What I want us to do this evening is I want us to look at four views that you will find in writings among our brethren in churches of Christ over the, over the years. Four views And these views are not to be taken lightly. You're not to just dismiss them out of hand and say, well, you know, I don't like that one, so I'm not going to give it any serious consideration. Rather, 
you need to appreciate that the people who held these views and who have written about these things, even today, have spent a tremendous amount of time studying scripture. They've spent a tremendous amount of time learning God's word. These are no slouches when it comes to Bible study. And they are not guilty of shoddy scholarship just because they might hold a view that may be different from one that somebody else holds. And so as we ask the question, what is the gift of the Holy Spirit? Here are four common responses among our brethren. Sincere brethren over the years have written and they probably hold one of these four views. The gift of the Holy Spirit, some say, is the gift of salvation itself. Again, going to talk about this view in just a moment. What are the, what, what are the arguments that are made and what would you say in response to that? A second view is that the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 verse 38 is miraculous gifts, charismatic gifts. The laying on of hands of the apostles conferring gifts upon New Testament Christians. A third view that people have about the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2.38 is that it, it is about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, a representative indwelling by means of the Word of God. So when you read scripture and when it's written on your heart and when you take God's word into your heart, there's a representative indwelling. That is the spirit indwells you by means of the agency of the word. And then a fourth view that our our brethren have held over the years, that the gift of the Holy Spirit refers to the indwelling of the spirit, but it has to do with a literal and personal indwelling as distinct from a representative indwelling by means of the word. Those are the four views. And if you hear a gospel preacher preaching about the gift of the Holy Spirit, more likely than not, one of those four views is one that he holds and is trying to espouse. And I don't know about you, but it's helpful for me just to see that and to know that as I'm listening to somebody, as I'm reading somebody's writings, this is what's being argued. This is what's being brought forth. It's helpful just to see the table of contents, the survey. And that's what this particular lesson is. Now, the Bible says that we're supposed to speak the same things. We're supposed to be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 10, doesn't it? The Bible says that as we study God's word, we're supposed to study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2 verse 15. The Bible tells us that we're to search the scriptures daily to see whether the things that we believe and are hearing are actually so, Acts 17 verse 11. And my challenge to you this evening is this, don't just take somebody's view that you respect and that you think highly of, don't just take somebody else's view on the gift of the Holy Spirit and say, well, I agree with that guy in every other aspect, so I agree with his view on the Holy Spirit as well, the uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Don't do that. We're going to give an account for ourselves. We're going to give an account for our own study of God's word. And all of us have an obligation as we study God's word to come to conclusions, to draw conclusions, and to think biblically about what we believe and why we believe it. Again, before I go on, none of these four views, in my judgment, none of these four views does violence to scripture in the sense that none of these four views would cause someone to lose their soul. Provided that we watch out for a couple of things. And if you're taking notes, you might jot this down. Provided that, number one, we're not arguing that the Holy Spirit is still performing miracles today. 
We've talked about that in previous lessons, the idea that miracles have ceased, that there was a time that God prophesied when tongues and gifts and prophecies and things like that were going to come to a conclusion because the miracles were the scaffolding for the development and the writing of the word of God. 1 Corinthians 13, verses eight through 10. Nobody in any one of these four views can legitimately argue that the spirit is still working miracles today, that charismatic gifts are still available to us today. Those things are not true. Secondly, no one should argue that the Holy Spirit is somehow absent from our lives, that he doesn't indwell us at all. We'll talk more about the indwelling in just a moment. But the idea that he does not indwell us at all, the idea that he's not present in our lives, that's not biblical either. And there are multiple passages to that effect. Acts chapter five, verse 32, he's given the Holy Spirit to those who obey him. And whether you believe it's a representative indwelling by means of the word, or whether you believe it's a literal indwelling, literal and personal, Both positions believe in the indwelling of the Spirit. They just disagree on the how. How does he indwell? Does he indwell literally? Does he indwell by means of the word? So the question is not the fact of the indwelling. The question is the means. How does he indwell a Christian? Usually people get really tense, you know, when you start talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit. I hope I'm not making you tense this evening. That's not my purpose. That's not my idea. But I do want you to think about this because this is a biblical topic. It is a topic that is worthy of our study. It's a topic that we ought to have some convictions about. Because in Acts 2.38, again, we talk a lot about baptism and how repentance and baptism are necessary for the forgiveness of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We need to talk about that as well, especially in our evangelism. Now, Having said all that, what I'm going to do this evening is just this. We're going to look at each one of those four views in turn. I want to spend just a few moments, and I know my time is limited. So what I did for you is I typed out a lot of these notes on your handouts. So if you're sitting there with a blank sheet of paper and you're scribbling furiously, stop it, okay? Stop scribbling furiously. You can get a handout on your way out if you didn't get one on the way in. And it's got a lot of this information already typed out. I realized I was going to be talking fast. But secondly, okay, I'm going to look at not just views, uh, these views and and, and how they would be argued. What, What would our brethren say about these things? But secondly, we're going to talk about some common responses. And I will say this and hasten to say this. Men far wiser than me and far more studied than me have developed these things. There are books this thick in my library and some of your libraries on this topic, And so there's no way I can say everything about each one of these views tonight. So please, if you think, well, John's just oversimplifying. Yes, I am oversimplifying. I I admit it up front. But I want you to understand there's much more to this than just what you're hearing tonight. And I would encourage you to study and to read some of our brethren's writings and their thoughts on this particular subject because it is important. All right, without further ado, number one this evening, the idea of the gift of the Holy Spirit being salvation itself. So if you got your Bibles and you're looking at Acts chapter two, verse 38, again, look at the passage. And what's being argued here is basically this. Some of our brethren have taken the position that the gift of the Holy Spirit is the the gift of salvation itself and the blessings that come with it. Salvation itself and the blessings that come with it. 
And you say, well, how would, how would somebody argue that? How would somebody make that case? I'll show you. One of the most common things that brethren who hold this view would do is they would take Acts 2.38 and they would take Acts 3.19. Turn over in your Bible, if you would, to Acts 3.19. This is done commonly to talk about repentance and baptism, but it also works for, if you believe that the, the, the gift of the Holy Spirit is salvation, it also works to kind of show a parallel here, it seems. In Acts 3, verse 19, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And what brethren who would believe in the 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 salvation view of the gift of the Holy Spirit would say is they would say, look, there are parallels. In Acts 2.38, Peter said, repent. In Acts 3.19, he said, repent again. In Acts 2.38, he said, be baptized. In Acts 3.19, he said, turn back. And in Acts 2.38, he said, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And look at this, in Acts 3.19, you see these parallel? your sins will be blotted out. So it's almost like he's saying the same thing. He's just using different language in Acts 3.19 to say what he already said in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. And then they'll point out, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2.38. And in Acts 3.19, that times or seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Salvation, the blessings that come with salvation, And they'll say, see, it looks like there is a gift that's being given to people and it has to do with times of refreshing, the the, the gift of salvation, the refreshing, the blessings that come from the Lord himself. Other things that folks might do as they talk about this particular view, they might take you to Romans chapter six, verse 23. Romans 6, 23 says, the wages of sin is death, but watch this. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Well, eternal life is salvation, isn't it? If the wages of sin is death and the gift that God gives me is eternal life, they will connect that with Acts 2.38 and they will say, gift of the Holy Spirit, gift of God, it's salvation. Again, John chapter four, verse 10. I didn't put the entire text on the screen, but Jesus says to that Samaritan woman at the well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you, give me a drink of water, you would have asked him. What's Jesus talking about there in John four, verse 10? He's talking about salvation. If you knew that God could give you salvation, if you knew who it was you were talking to, you would have asked me for water, Jesus says. You would have asked me for living water. A gift of God, salvation is. Galatians 3.14, Galatians 3.29, again, the connection between God's gift and being being blessed as the seed of Abraham. All of this is used in the logic. And again, some very wise and very studied brethren among us have held this view historically. The idea that the gift of the Holy Spirit is salvation. There is more that could be said and should be said. Again, for time's sake, I'm not going to. So what would somebody say in response to this? What would people who say, well, it's not salvation, Acts 2.38. It's not the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the, the gift of the Holy Spirit is not salvation. What would they say? They might respond this way. Look, Acts 2.38 says, you'll receive forgiveness of sins 
and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now look at that highlighted and. That's called a conjunction in English. It's called a conjunction in Greek too. And the conjunction means that there is a distinction that's being made. A distinction that's being made. If I tell somebody, I need you to go to the store and buy milk and bread, and makes a distinction. I need you to buy milk, yes, but I need you to buy something else that's different from it, milk and bread. The forgiveness of sins, that's salvation. The gift of the Holy Spirit, that's something else, it would seem grammatically. Something distinct from, associated with salvation, yes, but it's not salvation itself because of the conjunction. And if you look earlier in this same verse, repent and be baptized. Those are two different things, aren't they? They're related, but they're different. That's what the conjunction does. It joins two things that are different, but related. And then secondly, in response to this idea that the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit is salvation. In Galatians chapter four, verse six, the writer says, because you are sons, notice that word because, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Notice there is a cause and effect relationship. Because you are sons, you become a Christian first, you become a son first, then as a result of that, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. A cause and effect relationship. If the gift of the Holy Spirit is salvation, this passage doesn't make a great deal of sense. If this is indeed speaking about the same kinds of things that we read about in Acts 2.38. Again, as you think about this particular view, some have held this over the years and I would highly recommend, if you, if you wanna read about this some more, come find me at the back of the auditorium and I'll give you some writers that you can go and read their writings and think about what they've said and what they've, what they've put forth. It's important to know. A second view is this, the gift of the Holy Spirit, is it miraculous gifts or is it charismatic gifts? Same, two sides of the same coin, same thing. In the first century, New Testament Christians in the first century sometimes had the ability to perform miracles. And the way that they received the ability to perform miracles was by the laying on of the apostles' hands. Acts chapter 8, verse 17 and some would have this argument. They would say that the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2.38 refers to the miraculous gifts that were conferred by the laying on of the apostles' hands. That's what they would say the gift of the Holy Spirit is. If you go east of the Mississippi, okay, the Mississippi River, if you go east of the Mississippi, this is a very common view in the eastern part of our country, among our brethren in churches of Christ, very common. The idea that it is miraculous gifts conferred by the apostles' hands, Acts 8 verse 17. And that's what the gift of the Holy Spirit refers to. And you say, well, why would someone argue this way? Again, many lines of argument, not going to get into all of them here, but here are a couple. Repent and be baptized, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They're saying this is the miraculous. This is something that the apostles would give to those that they deemed needed those abilities, those gifts. 
And the inference is here that upon being baptized, the apostles laid hands on, you think about Acts chapter 2, what's happening, about 3,000 come and are baptized on the day of Pentecost. And the inference here is that, uh, that the apostles laid hands on these 3,000 and they were able to speak in tongues and interpret and to heal the sick and whatever the Spirit needed them to do. That's the inference that's being made according to this particular view. How would someone argue this? You got your Bible? Let's do some study for just a moment. By the way, there's a lot to commend this particular position. There's a lot to be said in favor of this particular position. All right, number one, look if you would at Acts 2.38. And again, gift of the Holy Spirit. Keep that in your mind. Now, that's a question mark. Is it miraculous? Is it something else? We're just going to leave a question mark there. If you turn over to Acts chapter 8, verse 20, though, you start to see some language related to the word gift. And it's always, it seems, used in a, a miraculous context, at least in these examples it is. Acts 8, verse 20. Your money perish with you, Peter says to Simon the sorcerer, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. What did Simon the sorcerer think he could purchase? He thought he could purchase the ability to confer miracles on somebody else. It's miraculous. Next, turn over to Acts chapter 10, verse 45. Advocates of this position would say a lot about Acts 10, verse 45. The scripture says, as they sit down with Cornelius and begin a Bible study, that those of the circumcision were astonished because the gift of the Holy Spirit, you see that in Acts 10, 45, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And they'll point out, this is the exact same language that you see in Acts 2, 38. But the gift of the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon Cornelius, the Gentiles also. And again, it's clearly a miraculous context because what's Cornelius doing? He's speaking in tongues. He's glorifying God. And they'll say, well, that the gift of the Holy Spirit. There you have it. Gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2.38. Not quite sure what that is, but gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts 10.45 is clearly miraculous as it is in Acts 8.20, the gift of God. Acts 11.17, next chapter. If therefore God gave them the same gift he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? And proponents of this particular view would say, over and over and over, you see the gift referring to miraculous things. Turn over to a couple of passages in Ephesians very quickly. Ephesians 3 and verse 7. Ephesians 3 and verse 7. The apostle Paul is talking about his ministry as an apostle. He's talking about how he received it. And it says in Ephesians 3, 7, of this ministry I became one according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. What's Paul referring to there in Ephesians 3, 7? He's referring to his ministry as an apostle and the miraculous abilities that would go with that ministry. And not only that, Ephesians 4, verse 7. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And there is clearly a miraculous context here in Ephesians 4, verse 7 as well. So those that would argue that the gift of the Holy Spirit is miraculous gifts, they would make this list and they would point out to you very kindly, biblically, in the Greek language, 
This word gift is very frequently associated with the miraculous, the gift of the Holy Spirit. What would you say in response? What would anybody say in response? A couple of things to think about. Go back to Acts chapter 2 now in your Bibles. In Acts 2 verse 38, about 3,000 are baptized. Then the Bible says in Acts 2.47 that the church kept growing, remember? They were constantly baptizing people. They were constantly teaching people. And the Lord added to their number daily those that were being saved, Acts 2.47. But what's interesting about all that is from Acts chapter 2 all the way to the beginning of Acts chapter 6, nobody, nobody, nobody except for the apostles is ever said to have performed a miracle. Nobody. Nobody who is not an apostle in those four chapters is said to have performed a miracle. It's always Peter and John or the apostles together. Look at Acts 2.42. Excuse me, Acts 2.43. Then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And so in response to this idea that the gift of the Holy Spirit is the apostles laying their hands on Christians and conferring miraculous gifts, one response is, well, that may well be true. However, it is interesting that only the apostles are said to have performed miracles from Acts 2 to Acts 5. In fact, the very first non-apostle to have miraculous gifts is Stephen. And not until Acts chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, do you see him performing miracles. That's curious if the gift of the Holy Spirit is, in fact, miraculous abilities. One more thing to consider along these lines. Not every Christian in the first century even possessed miraculous abilities. And what's fascinating about that to me is in Acts 2.38, look again at the passage. In Acts 2.38, repent and let every one of you be baptized. You will receive the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's almost like this position demands that you have to argue everybody receives forgiveness when they're baptized, but only some people, a limited number, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I will say this in favor of the miraculous gifts of you. When people want to think about Pentecostal ideas or charismatic ideas, this particular view especially gives absolutely no quarter, no opportunity for that to be legitimate, absolutely none. And yet at the same time, there are some challenges that have to be overcome and dealt with. Not every Christian in the first century could speak in tongues. Not every Christian in the first century could heal the sick or raise the dead. Only a limited number could. Next, number three, some would argue that the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2.38 is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in a representative way by means of the word of God. Again, the idea here is that as we listen to the Bible, as we listen to the word of God, it is written, it is stored in our hearts. And by means of that word, the spirit dwells in us. 
So he's not literally actually dwelling in you in a personal, literal sense, but rather a representative sense. And so this view as well has much to be said in its favor. Again, don't dismiss, don't, don't throw out anything until you've proven all things and just hold fast that which is good. First Thessalonians 5 verse 21. How would someone argue this particular position? Oftentimes what is done is a list is made, actually two lists, column. There will be a list talking about the spirit and what he's said to do, his work, his, his uh, role in a Christian's life. And then parallel to that is a list of things that the word is said to do, the word's role in a Christian's life. For example, just, just an example, this is not an exhaustive list. The spirit is said to convict people of sin. John chapter 16, verse eight. Jesus said that as a matter of fact about the Holy Spirit, that he will convict the world of sin. But guess what? The word of God does the same thing. In Acts 2, verse 37, when they heard Peter's preaching, they were cut to the heart and they cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? So the word is convicting people while the spirit is convicting people. A second thing, the spirit is said to sanctify us. Sanctify is the word holy in the Greek language. It just means we wouldn't say holy-fy because that's not good English, but that would be good from Greek's standpoint, sanctify just means to make us holy. And the spirit is said to sanctify us, but so is the word of God. John 17, 17, sanctify them by truth. Your word, O God, is truth. The spirit is said to lead us and to guide us. You are led by the spirit, Galatians chapter five, verse 18. Walk in the spirit, Paul says in that same context. Follow after the Spirit. So do the Spirit, Galatians 6, verses 7 and following. So the Spirit is said to lead us and to guide us, but the Word of God is said to do the same thing, isn't it? Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119, verses 105. And so those that would hold and, 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 and adhere to this particular view would take a list like this and they would say, everything that the spirit is said to do, it appears the word of God is also said to do. And when you think about indwelling, the spirit dwells in us, but the word of God dwells in us as well as we'll see presently. And they make these lists and they show the parallel. Again, much to be said, the spirit dwells in us. First Corinthians six nineteen, the word dwells in us. Colossians three sixteen. A second way in which sometimes this is argued this representative indwelling idea. Oftentimes, brethren will take two passages. They'll take Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, and they will put it parallel to Colossians chapter three, verse 16. Just open your Bibles to those two passages very briefly. Ephesians chapter five, verses 18 and 19. And again, showing some parallels here. In Ephesians 5, Beginning in verse 18, the scripture says, do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but you be filled with the spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Now turn over to Colossians chapter three and look at verse 16. So Ephesians five says, be filled with the spirit. And then it talks about singing and making melody with your hearts. Colossians 3.16 now says, 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And what brethren will do is they'll say, look, in a passage that deals with singing and teaching one another and communicating about God's greatness and and the joy that we have in the Lord, it talks about being filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5, but in Colossians 3, almost a parallel passage says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And again, proponents of this view, there are many other lines of argumentation that they might use to make the case that the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2.38 is the representative indwelling of the Spirit in a Christian's life by means of the Word of God. What could be said in response? Well, a number of things could, just give you one to think about. Go back to Acts chapter two and look at verse 38 again. The idea that the Holy Spirit dwells in a Christian by means of the Word of God, representatively, that idea still has to deal with this particular challenge. Here's the challenge. The hearing and the reception of God's word in Acts 2 precedes baptism. Acts 2 verse 41, those who gladly received his word were baptized. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. Even today, We teach people the word of God before they're baptized, right? We're teaching people about God's word. It's being written on their hearts before they're baptized, before they obey the gospel. And the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2.38 is the promise. It follows baptism. See where I'm coming from here? It follows baptism. Repent and be baptized And one of the consequences of your baptism is that you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It follows. Well, if it's the indwelling of the Spirit representatively through the Word, the question has to be asked, if I've already got the Word in my heart, aren't we getting things a little bit out of sequence? Again, one problem that needs to be overcome and dealt with. Again, nobody should just dismiss or write off any view about this without studying and listening very carefully and reading what's been said. And then there's a fourth view. Oh, wait a minute before I go on. I forgot there was a slide in here. I wanna, I wanna show this to you, by the way. If you're looking at Acts 2.38 and you're asking the question, what is the gift of the Holy Spirit? I want you to know that those first three views are variations on a theme. All of our brethren who would believe in those three views Maybe you hold one of those three views. All of them would hold to the representative indwelling position. Even if they believed in Acts 2.38 specifically that that refers to salvation, they would still hold to the representative indwelling position. Even if they believed that in Acts 2.38 specifically it refers to miraculous gifts, they would still go to other passages and they would hold the representative indwelling position. So those three go together in that sense. They're variations on a theme. But as you consider Acts 2.38, all three of those are saying, if the Spirit lives in us, and He does, that He does so representatively through the Word of God. Then there's this fourth view. The fourth view is that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit coming and living in you. Simple as that. 
there are some things to be said in favor of this. This view holds that the Spirit himself is bestowed as a gift when a believer is immersed and that the Spirit becomes an abiding presence in the believer's life. I've thought of it this way over the years, this particular view. It's, it's, it's almost as if as God looks down on the world and there's seven plus billion people in the world, God can see little points of light, people in whom his spirit dwells. Those are the people that belong to him. Those are his people. God can see that from that perspective. And so this view holds that the spirit himself is the gift This does not, once again, those that believe and hold this view, sound, faithful brethren, they do not argue or believe that miracles are performed today. They don't believe that the Holy Spirit is guiding us or speaking to us or illuminating us in any way apart from the Word of God, the Scripture. That's important to say. However, those that would hold this view would argue the most natural reading of the New Testament leads you to this conclusion. That's what they would argue. For example, in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Paul argues before his brethren, do you not know that your body is a temple dwelling place of the Holy Spirit who is in you? And you're not your own. You have him from God. You are not your own. They would say, that's the most natural reading of the passage, the idea that the Spirit lives in me. And it never says anything in this passage anyway about a representative by means of the word indwelling. It doesn't say that. It just says he's in you. Acts 5.32, we are witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Again, most natural, straightforward reading of the passage would lead one to believe that God gives the Holy Spirit literally personally to someone who believes in him and obeys him. Many other passages in the New Testament to this effect. There are some objections. There are some responses to this particular position. Here are the three most common. I put them in your notes for you again so you don't have to write all this down. Common responses to the view. Response number one is, well, if you're saying the Holy Spirit literally personally dwells in a Christian, the Spirit would be divided. And in response to that, those that hold this view would say, well, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two, verse four, the spirit was in all of the apostles. It says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Was the spirit divided when they were all filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts two, verse four? First Corinthians 12, verse seven, we all possess measure of the gifts of the spirit. First Corinthians chapter 12. A second response Some would argue that if the Spirit lives in a person, that would mean that there is an incarnation. We use that word to describe Jesus and his work, incarnation, when deity took on flesh. But there is a vast difference between indwelling and incarnation, those that would hold this view would argue. A vast difference. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. John chapter one, verse 14. Jesus was born of a virgin. The way Jesus came into this world is very different from what we're talking about if someone receives the Holy Spirit as a gift at their baptism. It's not the same thing as an incarnation. Some who hold this view would say in Exodus chapter three, verse four, when God dwelt in the burning bush, Was that an incarnation of the burning bush? No, it's just God chose to dwell there for a time. 
so that he could communicate his will to Moses. And again, a third response to this particular view. Some have said, well, if the Holy Spirit literally personally dwells in you, wouldn't that enable people to work miracles? Wouldn't that enable miraculous abilities? And again, in response to that, those that hold this view would say, what about John the baptizer who was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, Luke 1.15. And yet the Bible says in John 10.41 that John the baptizer worked no miracles. Even though he was filled with the Holy Spirit, there was no miracle that he performed. Just because someone would take this literal personal indwelling view does not mean that they are advocating a better felt than told kind of spirituality. As a matter of fact, those that hold this view would argue that the only way you know the Spirit dwells in you is because the Bible tells you so. Although they would say the most natural reading of Scripture leads me to believe, they would say, that this is, this is the way that God intends for me to understand what's happening with the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. All four of these views have much to commend them. All four of these views have some things that can be said in response to them. My purpose tonight is not to try to necessarily convince you of any one. My purpose tonight is to encourage you, as you think about this particular subject, to encourage you to study and to form conclusions and to talk with others about these things and to ask, what does God say? Because ultimately, whether brother so-and-so believes this or that, or whether sister so-and-so believes this or that, really doesn't make a great deal of difference. What does the Bible say? That's where we need to come down. As God's people, I want you to know that we can have fellowship with one another, that we can work with one another, we can encourage one another and build one another up and encourage each other in the direction of heaven, holding those, any one of those four views but we still have an obligation to search the scriptures and understand what the Bible has taught about this. Thank you for your kind attention to this preachy class, classy sermon this evening. I really appreciate it. You've listened very well. If you need to respond to the first part of Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins, this is a wonderful opportunity to do that. The Bible promises when you do that, you'll receive forgiveness of sins. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Bible promises that you'll have new life in Jesus Christ. If you're ready to make that confession this evening to obey God and to obey the gospel, won't you make your way forward while together we stand and while we sing?